Well, today we come to the first, uh, or really the first kind of unpacking of what we considered a couple weeks ago around Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, which is really the, the, the opening statement and probably the phrase in which the whole creed flowed out of. But today we will consider these two statements, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. If we could go to this first slide. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, it's important when we talk about the incarnation or we talk about what theologians call the hypostatic union. Don't ever use that amongst non-believers. That just sounds stupid. Uh, but what it means is that we believe uh, that God entered in, the creator entered into his creation, and the creator became creature. That Jesus is the eternal son of God and the man who was born to the Virgin Mary. That this dual nature, both 100% God and 100% man, is something that is, that is central to the Christian faith. And I would just tell you out of the gate that every uh, every false belief within Christianity, every, every cultish belief or misguided uh, belief system around the name of Christian uh, is always comes back to a, to a misinterpretation uh, or, uh, or diminishment of the authority and the deity of Jesus. And so what I want us to see today in these two pronouncements, that he's conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary, that God in his free grace became man, a real man, that the eternal word became flesh. This is the mystery and the miracle of Jesus Christ's existence, the descent of God from above downwards, the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. As we have before us in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, here's one of the issues. What I have found is that the virgin birth, uh, along with many miracles, if not all miracles, are often treated with incredulity, even by Christians. In fact, the virgin birth came under incredible attack at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and, and I think that, that the reasoning behind the incredulity is, is this, is that often Christians do a horrible job attempting to make their faith more palatable for modern sensibilities. And in doing so, they try to diminish or downplay uh, key components of Christianity that, that they that feel um, outrageous or, or fantastical. But listen, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died for your sins on the cross 2,000 years ago and that he rose the, uh, on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the heaven, you've already crossed the threshold of what is acceptable belief systems, okay? Yet you are already, you've already become the fool in the secular mind. Uh, so why do we have to throw out, and I, I can think of specifically a theologian, uh, I won't mention my name, but one that I really love, and he would always try to downplay the miracles or put them into question and act as if they were unnecessary, but he fully held to the idea that Jesus really was the, the savior of the world. I'm like, why do you believe that, but then reject other parts of Scripture? I, I, I find it deeply troubling. And if I could just share with you guys, I, I read a book a long time ago by J.P. Moreland, uh, and it was called The God Conversation, and he gave a great 
uh, a great illustration to help clarify the concept of miracles. Uh, And he sees miracles not as a violation of natural law, but an intervention into natural law. And the way that he illustrated it uh, was this. He said, you know, if you have an apple tree and gravity causes an apple to fall, if you reach out and catch the apple, you have intervened into a law. And this is essentially God as the creator of the universe, the one who spoke in the universe left into existence, has the ability to intervene into his creation. It is not a violation of natural law. It is an intervention into natural law. And so we hold tenaciously what the creed declares as an Orthodox church that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, that his birth, his birth was a miraculous birth, but at the same time, a very human birth, that we hold tenaciously that he is both God and man. We believe what is stated in Luke chapter 1, verses 34 through 35. And if you remember this beautiful story, we've looked at this passage at Christmas almost every year, when Gabriel appears to the young Jewish woman Mary and says, you're going to carry Israel's Messiah. You are going to give birth to the Son of God. He is going to be the king, and you're going to name him Jesus, and he will be the Messiah and the Savior of his people. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What does this passage remind you of? What, is it, what does it point back to? What verse in Genesis does this remind you of? For what I want us to see in the virgin birth, because I believe that the virgin birth it directly corresponds to Jesus' death and resurrection, is that the virgin birth is essentially a recreation within the old creation. Jesus is the second Adam. God recreates within his own creation man as he intended man to be by actually entering into humanity, taking upon himself human flesh. And this actually speaks or even points back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And it says, the earth was without form and void. It was chaos. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Before God begins to speak things into existence, this is the reality. And here is the same, is that in this recreation within the old creation, the Spirit of God, the creative Word of God, someone said that Mary gave, uh, uh, conceived of uh, Jesus through the ear. <laughs> I don't know why that bothers me, but the, but the, the point is, is that the Word the creative word was spoken to her. It was spoken to her, and she becomes really an object lesson in what it means to be a true believer. She believed the word of God and became a conduit by which the Son of God came into this world. Now, here is the powerful thing. As you see, what is told is that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. We don't want to think, when it says conceived of the Holy Spirit, we're not saying that the Holy Spirit is the Father. What we are saying is that God creatively, before the foundation of the world, already planned out our redemption by entering into his own creation miraculously. He intervened into the natural order. 
And so it is that the Virgin Mary became pregnant with child. And he is both God and he is both man. What the creed declares to us is what Scripture declares again and again. God himself makes himself a man without ceasing to be God. God became man. His humanity is not to be thought of as a costume, but it is literally a part of his essential nature. He is true God and true man. Through the birth of Jesus Christ, God and man literally became one. The unchanging God changed. He became something he was not before without changing in his essential nature, his purposes and his plans. It's powerful. When you read that phrase, conceived by the Holy Ghost, how does that strike you? Because the word conceived sounds passive, doesn't it? Like a child who is conceived. If you're parents, you know what it means to be the active participants. And I don't want to plant that image into your, into your mind. But the child uh, has no conception, uh, does no memory of its conception. I, but here we have something unique because the Son of God possesses eternal consciousness. And so when it says conceived by the Holy Ghost, I think this is another way of saying what we looked at a couple weeks ago, is that this is the beginning of the Son's obedience. That he was poured out, if you will. That he, was, he emptied himself of his glory. That he entered into the frailty of human flesh and human existence. That he actually assumed I would argue, sinful flesh without sinning. He entered into the world the way that we all entered the world, which is in the womb and through birth. He came into the world, the creator of the universe, who spoke in the universe like the new existence. We're told that all things were created through the Son, the eternal word. And yet this same one came in a helpless child, a baby, I think that this is also important for us to see is that Mary herself, uh, this, this is directly connected uh, to the fact that, that it is anchored in, in the promise to Israel uh, that their Messiah would come. And in fact, uh, if you look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, it's true that in the Hebrew, virgin could just mean young woman, but it became translated in the, in the Greek as virgin. And I believe that the Holy Spirit guiding uh, the writers of the New Testament took this to be a fulfillment of that Old Testament promise that through, uh, through Israel would come the Messiah, the promised one, the king, the rightful king, that he would be uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And here we have the fact that it's not a random miracle story, that it's a reminder that our faith has deep roots in Israel's story and Israel's scriptures. If I could borrow from Meyer in his, in his amazing little devotional book on the creed, that the coming of the Savior wasn't just a new thing, it was the culmination of the whole great story of God's loving faithfulness to the people of Israel. So here we have the statement in the creed. And what I want to anchor us down in, in regards to the incarnation and what it means when we say that the word became flesh, I want us to look uh, the remainder of our time at Galatians chapter four. We're just going to look at verses four through seven. And what I want us to consider is the fullness of time, the house of bondage, uh, and the source of joy. Now, beginning with the fullness of time, look what it says in Galatians chapter four, 
verse 4. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Once again, the entire life of Jesus has saving significance. And in the sending forth of his son uh, is the son's obedience to come to empty himself, to take upon himself the brokenness of human existence. But what does it mean when it says the fullness of time? What does that mean? When the fullness of time had come, how was time full? What made the time that Jesus came significant in human history? I, I, I actually think that there are some things that we can note about the particular time in which God sent forth his son. If you think about it, look at the backdrop of the birth of Jesus. Human religion had hit its peak. We have never, there's never uh, surpassed Judaism in religion. And yet, was that religion able to save Israel? No, they lost, their, they lost the covenantal God in the midst of replacing it with religion. And if you think about it, all religions since then, especially in the West, I mean, our Western society is founded upon Judaism. We can remove the Ten Commandments from, from courthouses, but it doesn't change the fact that our law is built upon the Jewish faith. It, it, it works with that. This is, we've never improved upon that. Human philosophy had reached its peak. The Greek philosophers, all philosophy since then has been built upon that foundation. Never improved upon it. Human government in the Roman Empire, I read uh, last year, one of the most boring books I've read in a long time called SPQR by Mary Beard on the Roman Empire. I was forced to by Seth Mercer. I just want to call him out for that, that awesome long, really long, redundant book. Uh, I, that's the peak of human government. We continually look back to Judaism, to the philosophy of the Greeks, to the Roman Empire, and we see these as the pinnacle. And this is when Jesus came to show that man at his best could not bring salvation. The best humans can do does not save us. I mean, if all we have to do is look at even the time in which we live today, which we live longer, we have more, and yet we're more unhappy, where suicide is on the, it continues to increase. And, and what we have found is that human ability to save itself is impossible, that we're left helpless. But the fullness of time had come. And when the fullness of time had come, God set forth his son. I would say that if we were to look at Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What this means for us, especially when we have such a tendency to become overwhelmed with the darkness of our days, we can look back to a more peaceful past. We can look forward to a happier future, but it seems as if now is the time we often want to escape. Did you find that? Oh, you're in your work week and you're like, I can't wait till the weekend, but it is in the now that we find the saving God. And we cannot see that the time had fully come, but above time, and maybe better, over time, God rules. And it was at this time that it was time for him to act. It was time for him to save. Now, look with me at John chapter 6, verse 38. So he says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And what was the will of the Father for the Son? Why 
did Jesus come? What is the fullness of time? What did it bring? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, John 3, 17, but in order that the world, what? Might be saved through him. I love that because ever since Jesus has come, we live in the last days. And I can say, honestly, the same that it was said when the scriptures were written, today is the day of salvation. The fullness of time has come, and Jesus Christ is the answer to that reality, to the brokenness and the lostness of human existence. Jesus has come. God sent his son not to condemn the world, but that through him he might save the world. It's powerful. This is the fullness of time. But what about the house of bondage? Because look what it says next. It says, he was born of a woman, born under the law. Now, the apostle here does not speak of the virgin birth. And the reason he doesn't, he doesn't want to emphasize what distinguishes Jesus from us, but to show what makes him like us. And he, he basically states two things, birth and law. And by law, Paul means that the curse that weighs down human life on account of its godlessness. Jesus entered this curse. He takes the failure, the debts that have incurred, and allows them literally to crush him to death. This is why I said that when, G when God became man, when the eternal son became Jesus Christ, the God-man, he assumed upon himself sinful flesh. What, is, what I mean by that is that he played fair according to the rules. He entered into human existence in the fall. We often think of Jesus as some sort of Superman that was, that was not affected by sin. He felt sin deeply. He felt the brokenness of humanity deeply without ever sinning. He who knew no sin became sin. And what we have in Jesus is not, is not God functioning before human eyes, but we have, we have spirit-empowered flesh functioning in perfection, the way that God intended man to, to function. And what I mean by that is that Jesus Christ, it says he emptied himself. I believe that Jesus functioned uh, in full dependence upon the power of the Father and the power of the Spirit. And, and this is what it meant that he submitted himself. And I also would argue that every time Jesus healed, every time he did a sign and wonder, that, that he took into himself that brokenness. Isn't it fascinating that we never see Jesus laughing in the Gospels. It's not because he doesn't have a sense of humor, but I believe it's because he is the son of sorrows. He enters into the brokenness of human existence, and he makes that existence his own. He took upon himself sinful flesh without ever sinning. And when we think of born of a woman and born under the law, he came under the curse. He took our brokenness into himself that he might free us from that house of bondage. Jesus took all the suffering and evil of time into himself. It's a powerful, powerful reality. But what does that mean for us? And I would say that what it should mean for you and I is that God is God enough to save us, but he must be man enough that we can relate to him. We often think of Jesus identifying with our humanity, but it's difficult for us to identify with a Jesus who actually identifies, it's difficult for us to picture a God who identifies with our sin. And yet, I don't know about you, but for me, sin is a huge part of who I am. It's a huge part of my human experience. Sin isn't just something I do, it's something that I am. 
It's the, it's the fact that even the good that I do is infiltrated, that everything I do is marked by mixture and brokenness and frustration, that I can never seem to actually achieve all that it is that I think I'm meant for because there is this unfortunate reality that sin is like gravity pulling me to the ground constantly. And how could I worship and serve a God that didn't understand that? Because that's a huge part of my human experience. I can't have a God who can keep his hands clean and somehow still be the savior of the world. No, he needs to understand my sin. And that's exactly what scripture says. Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 through 16 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. That doesn't mean that he wanted to sin, but every sin came against him. And it says that he who knew no sin became sin. He absorbed it into himself in such a way that it's a mystery. We'll never fully get our heads around that. But it says, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that this is a God you can trust because he understands the frailty of human existence. He has taken that brokenness, that frailty. He has taken the fallen state into himself. He has taken all suffering and evil of time into himself. And it makes him our sympathetic high priest. Now, the way that I find this helpful uh, to think about is if you think about it in terms of the distinction between sympathy and empathy. Now, empathy is something that my wife accuses me of having none. Uh, and empathy, and that's what makes me a good pastor, honestly, because if you have empathy, you're in trouble. No, I, I have empathy, but not as much as I ought to. Uh, but empathy is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to be able to put yourself into an experience that you yourself have not had. So empathy is, is when you, it's, it's needed desperately for counselors. It's their ability to listen and to, to, to identify, even though they may not have had the experience, with the brokenness of the person that's sharing. And we all, we all want empathy, but the distinction between empathy and sympathy is this. Sympathy is actually having a shared experience. So the example I would use is when I was uh, in year two of Door of Hope and I went into this horrid season of anxiety, it lasted for eight months. I mean, it was so crippling that I would break down and cry every hour and I, I, I thought I was losing my mind. And before that, when someone would come to me and tell me that as a, as a Christian would tell me that they were struggling with depression or anxiety, I would immediately say, oh, well, you must have some sin issue. Like, you just don't have enough faith in Jesus. Like, if you had faith in Jesus, there's, I mean, you wouldn't be struggling with, you're just depressed because you're self-absorbed. Super pastoral of me. Just real, just <laughs> healing words. Uh, and, and then I was struck with anxiety. And, and I couldn't tell you why I was experiencing it. And believe me, I had all sorts of friends like Job who gave me all sorts of reasons, wanted to speak into my experience, but they didn't know what my experience was and they hadn't experienced it and they could not sympathize with it. Instead, they tried to help me by you know, analyzing it from the outside. And let me just tell you, it is not very helpful to be analyzed from the outside when someone doesn't know what they're talking about or even understand the experience. And I got, I got a taste of my own medicine from a lot of people. Like, oh, you probably, you probably have unconfessed sin. 
you know, or you know, maybe maybe you're maybe you know you're you've inherited a genetic disposition toward just being mentally unstable, or you know, maybe maybe your you know your diet's bad. Uh, you know, maybe you listen to bad music that gives you. I don't know. There are so many things. People, are, I was like, I don't need speculation. What I need is sympathy, and 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 when I came through that 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 season. And, and you know what? It was a whole, I always found that our suffering is usually far more complex, far more layered than we can even begin to imagine. There was sin. There was, there was me carrying burdens that God didn't ask me to carry in, re, in regards to leading the church, feeling the weight of everything, wondering if people would come back every week and being surprised when they did, not being surprised when they didn't. <laughs> um, all of these things, there was, there was a lack of sleep. There was a physiological reality. When you don't sleep, you get crazy. Your brain needs sleep. There, there was spiritual attack because Satan doesn't like it when Jesus is proclaimed in a city like Portland. All of these things were realities that played into this, this depression. But when I came out of it, all of a sudden I saw one of the reasons that the Lord allowed me to go through that. And I don't believe, and I hated that when people would say that, oh, Jesus is just doing this to you. He has his purpose. Like, please don't, don't put the suffering off on some sort of secret mean streak on God. I, what I did see, though, is that Jesus utilized that suffering, and he did. He brought, forth that, brought me through that season. I hope I never have to go through it again, but it, it gave me a deep sympathy for people that experience that, and it's only because I have a shared experience. I know what it's like to feel so overwhelmed that you can't even put your finger on what it is. It just All you know is that you feel like something is horribly wrong. I know what it's like to feel the suffocating, overwhelming reality of existence and just feel like it's so crushing that you can't hardly function. I know that because I've experienced it. And that's what this passage is saying about Jesus. It's not saying that he's, he has empathy, like, oh, I made you, I get your problem, but I, don't, I haven't actually tasted that problem. No, it's saying that he entered into it in such a way that he understands it. He gets it. He's our sympathetic high priest. He entered into our house of bondage. He was born of a woman, born under the law. He took the curse into himself. And I love that my Savior has a shared experience with me. When I say that he who knew no sin became sin, all I can say is this, is that he gets sin better than we do because he took it all the way to its bitter end. He literally experienced hell for you so that you could have heaven, which is eternity with him. He experienced the full judgment of sin upon himself, for the Godhead is both judge and judged in our place. And I think that this is essential for us to understand because if we don't see that, why would we trust a God who doesn't get it, who doesn't understand human suffering. We can't, as I've said before, create a good theodicy. I can't tell you why suffering exists, but I do believe that God understands our suffering, has entered into our suffering, and I believe it with an absolute uh, intensity uh, that he will once and for all put it away when he returns. So, the house of bondage, born of a woman, born under the law. He's not just identified with our humanity, He's also identified himself fully with our brokenness and he has made a way out, which is why this reality of the incarnation is the source of joy. 
Look at verses five through seven. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Notice it doesn't say sons and daughters. This isn't because God is chauvinistic. It's because it's saying that both men and women find their identity in the sonship of Jesus. That we are treated like we are the son because we are abide, as we abide in him, the father sees us as covered by the son, by the work of the son. Redeem those who are under the law so that we might have adoption as sons. He is the only begotten son we are adopted in, grafted in sons and daughters of the Most High, covered in the Son. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son. What did we begin with? That He, the incarnation, was conceived by the Spirit. I think it's powerful because the incarnation points us to the regeneration and new birth of He being the firstborn over a whole new creation and we being children of that new kingdom, the kingdom of God. It says, God has sent, forth, sent the spirit of his son. He sent his son. Now he sends the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What do we just consider? Jesus entered into our house of bondage. We were once enslaved to sin and death. We who were once dead in our trespasses, Jesus Christ has come to do what? The gospel is anything, it's a gospel of freedom. And the incarnation is about God actually coming into his world to liberate it from the curse. And if I could share with you this beautiful statement from the Nicene Creed, which is an expansion of the clause that we just considered. It says, for who for us gives us the reason for the incarnation, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. I love that the Nicene Creed includes that, that it was for us and for our salvation, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame and the cross. What is the joy that was set before him? We are the joy. God's entrance into his own creation, the, the creator becoming creature, the eternal son becoming the God-man, he became man for us. He died as a man for us. He rose from the dead as a man for us. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and continues to exist as a man for us. And for all of eternity, God and man have become one through the eternal Son, through Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus says, what does it mean for us then? His full identity with our brokenness should mean that he is God enough to save us, but man enough that we can identify with him, that he can understand us. But for us, it should remind us again and again of the gospel, that even our salvation is based upon this free grace that flows to us and is revealed to us through the incarnation. God proves his love for the world by giving his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And even when you look at the words given to Mary, how does Mary respond to God's sovereign choosing of her? How does she respond when she's told what's gonna happen? And believe me, the gift of carrying the Messiah was also a, a burden because it, she was even told that through the life of Jesus, it would be like a sword piercing her own heart, the heartbreak that she would experience as a mother watching her own son crucified. But what does she say? For this is the response of, that should be the response of every believer to the call of Jesus. 
And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If I was to share with you this verse, John 1, 12 to 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This speaks to a twofold reality, I believe. I think this, this passage in the singular speaks to the incarnation, to God becoming man. But to us as followers and believers in Jesus, it speaks to the fact that we must be born again supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. It's funny that Christians often get all offended by Christian language. I don't like, I've had people say, I don't like the words born again. It's so Christian-y. I'm like, uh, okay. Jesus seemed to think it was important. I mean, you don't like born again, but it says, unless you be born again, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know. I feel like that's pretty important. Uh, you can take it up with him. You're like, Lord, I trust in you. I recognize that maybe I was born again, but I'm never going to say that because born again, you know, it's, it's so Christian-y. No, this is, the, this is the essence of the gospel. We must be regenerated. If we want to spend an eternity with Christ, we must put our faith in his perfect work. We must allow his spirit to bring to life in and through our lives his word. May the word become flesh in our lives. May the word, the son of God, be born again anew in our lives each and every day. May we recognize that it was for us and for our salvation that he came. And may we say like Mary, according to your word, according to your word, Lord, I am your servant. Have you given your allegiance to Jesus? Have you placed your absolute and total confidence in him, the God who is not content to exist without us, but the God who entered into your broken story that he might bring freedom to your life? Why do we hold on to our, sla our slavery? Why do we cling to the rights to our, our own lives? Why do we cling to our autonomy? Because we make miserable masters. May the Son of God set you free today. May the Word become flesh in your life. Amen?